You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. This is Sprogcast number 58. In this episode, Mark chats with physiotherapist Grania Donnelly all about pelvic health. Um, we have some thoughts about changing the format of the show, maybe, and would love your input. And we talk bushfire. I'm Karen Hall. He's Mark Harris. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, how are you doing, Karen? I'm very well, thank you. Busy January, as always. Busy doing what? Um, marking essays, um, going to Worcester, where I'm doing a postgrad certificate in higher education, um, running study days, being mm. a mum, being a girlfriend, those things. Mm. Study days. What, what's, what study days have you been running? I'm running one this week on facilitating breastfeeding activities for NCT practitioners. Oh, very good. Is that, are you doing that for the NCT or is that your own? Very good. And how many, how many punters will you have? 16. Oh, that's a big group. It's, well, I would consider that fully booked, but I went on one last week where there were 22 of us. So, Wow. I wasn't facilitating the 22 very happily. I was just there as a person. It's a trickier job, isn't it, when um, there's more numbers? That's my experience. The difference between 16 and 22 is phenomenal. Yeah. Do you do a lot of paired working or group working on your... Oh, yeah, loads of group work. Yeah. What, save you doing any? Well, no, because it's a good way of learning. (laughs) There is that added advantage that I get to sit down for a minute and have a breath, yes. (laughs) Yeah. No, I like... I, I think, you know, if you think about Kolb's... Um, model of learning, you know, the learning cycle, yes. uh, group work and the opportunity to reflect a very important part of the learning process. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I say that because years ago I learned all that stuff and I, I was learning it because I had to learn it. Uh, now I'm sort of like in the field doing this kind of work. Um, I, I see Kolb's cycle as being pretty much fundamental to my program design these days. Indeed. And you learning about it in theory, you kind of think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it's not until you actually get out there and um, in so many different settings, I see how effective it is to get people to do the work themselves in groups rather than listen to yeah. them saying stuff. And honestly, in in a group of 16 people, there's so much creativity and knowledge and experience. They don't really need me to say anything. No. The, I mean, the work then becomes more of a... I suppose the word facilitator is, is overused these days, but it's a good one because it's pointing to the activity of guiding the the, the process, you know, providing the raw materials for... Um, an activity and then reflection upon it. But yeah, very cool. So what about you? How are you? Me? Uh, slow, slow start to the year. Um, a real focus this year on health and well-being uh, for me. Uh, so you, 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 you know, Karen, I, I was over 30 stone and then I lost about eight stone and then I kind of managed to put three stone back on. So this year I've got a real focus on um, becoming more healthy. So what's your plan for weight loss, Mark? I'm really interested in this. 
okay, well, it's the, the way I lost, the way that eight stone came off uh, was simple. I went on a ketogenic diet. So I ate uh, less than 20 grams of carbohydrate a day. Uh, majority of my calories coming from natural fats um, with moderate portions of protein. And I measure that I'm in, I, the way I find out whether I'm in ketogenesis is by blood monitoring. So uh, every third day, I'll just men- measure my ketone levels with a blood spot test. Um, and that's the way I do it. No, and once I good. once I get into ketogenesis, once it takes about three days, uh, then my head clears and hunger pretty much disappears. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how the hunger goes. Just disappears. Yeah. For me, you have a couple of couple of days. They call it in the tribe uh, keto flu, but that's overstating it. But a couple of days of fuzzy head, feeling a little bit lethargic, and then. Once I'm in ketogenesis, clear head, n- no hunger, no energy dips, um, can initially have trouble getting um, a full eight hours sleep because tend to wake up earlier. Um, but that's it. And then I've added a little bit of uh, mobility to it. I lost eight stone without any exercise at all. Uh, now I'm doing building up from 15 to 30 minutes of walking a day i've, I've lost um two and a half stone since july whoa what, what, what have you done cut cut off a leg <laughs> um, <laughs> it's i'm not a scientific about it as you but i limited calories um up from july till november i was limiting my calorie intake um and continuing the amount of exercise i already did because i usually do couple of hours a week anyway right and then around november i stopped counting but because i've learned lots about how my body works i've continued the weight loss it slowed down a little bit but i'm i'm fine with that because um the week after christmas i got down below the healthy bmi um level so i was very happy with that and um yeah i just set short targets and 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 don't overthink it very nice. I, I'm too short for my weight. According to the charts, I should be about eight foot tall. Ah, uh, yeah. So, well, so maybe, I've got a height, maybe you got a height problem. Doing some sort of stretching instead of... Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what to, out of interest, Cam, what, what did you restrict your calories to? 1,400. Okay. There's a lot of debate about calorie restriction. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the idea that there's it's calorie in, calorie out deficit as being the major driver to weight loss. No. I'd, but I think perhaps... Um, different people's bodies respond differently to things, and I've definitely accidentally hit on the thing that worked. Yeah, me. yeah, rock and roll. That's a really important point you make because I know this isn't a diet and fitness program. <laughs> um, but, but but when it comes to ketogenic diet, you know, although we although people in the community say below twenty grams, uh, and you'll ultimately below twenty grams of carb carbohydrate and you'll ultimately get into ketogenesis it turns out that you know human beings are so unique that you know i might be out to eat 80 grams of carbohydrate and still be in ketogenesis it's just that our bodies are just so different but what i can say about me with some confidence is that i definitely uh had metabolic disease um in the sense that uh, the way I've eaten over so many years has made me kind of more susceptible to weight gain um, mm. because of how the metabolic endocrine dance um, works out in me. But no, I'm on it this year. 
Yeah, good work. A lot of my problem was in my head in that I've never dieted before in my life. I was fairly certain I couldn't possibly do that. Um, I really like food and I use it as a comfort and I use it as a reward and I use it when I'm yeah. bored. And it's it been very much more the the discipline and yeah. the learning that's made the difference for me. But Definitely. I haven't found it that difficult. Even over Christmas, it wasn't particularly hard. I just gave nice. myself a bit of a break, but didn't go mad and it was fine. Uh, and, and of course, you live with Peter, who I imagine can eat anything and is still lean. Well, the thing about Pete and the contribution he's made is that for other health reasons, he stopped drinking alcohol about a year ago. And when he stopped, I stopped. And so I'm not like religiously teetotal. I'll still drink if I'm in a pub, but we don't drink at home. And yeah. that's made a difference. No, not yeah. that we drank problematically. Uh, you can confess here if you want. Uh, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> nothing to say. <laughs> there's no one else listening, Karen? Well, I've been in a relationship <laughs> with someone who drank problematically and my weight was much, much higher and, and yeah. no problem then. So I know that alcohol affects me in that way. Cool. Cool. I, I, my, my wife restricts my alcohol content. <laughs> She's your voice of conscience. So she hides the bottle <laughs> and on a Friday I have a couple of inches of Jack Daniels and on a, on a Saturday I do and that's it. Broadcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, um, who you can find at pinterandmartin.com. And they do all kinds of fantastic books um, related to our area of birth and pregnancy and early parenting and breastfeeding and so on. Um, they recently sent me Amy Brown's yet another new book called um, Why Breastfeeding, Grief and Trauma Matter, which um, I can say this now because we're after the essay deadline, is a really really good source for the um, NCT level 4 breastfeeding essay that I'm currently marking um, and it's just an excellent book I recommend it to everybody why, why couldn't you mention it before the essay because <laughs> we hadn't recorded before the essay <laughs> I didn't have the book then ah got it <laughs> Yes, we are on Patreon. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash sprogcast, you can give us money and we'll send you stuff. Badge, <laughs> T-shirt. Depending how much you give us. Yeah, maybe maybe a mug in the future. Did you like your mug? I was just going to mention the mug. Thank you very much for my Christmas present. <laughs> That's all right. You like it? I'm delighted with it. And it's also a really nice mug. What do, what do you think about ceramic mugs? I know you've got, you got yeah, some no, reservations. I like, I'm, I'm coming around to the idea. So maybe maybe a mug. In the new year, Karen. Maybe a mug. Shall we get on with our topic? What do you think? I spoke to Grenya just before Christmas and what a great conversation. I don't know how much of it you've edited. I've edited the whole thing, Mark. No, I know that. But whether you've edited any of the themes out because it got a bit racy in places. I noticed you were enjoying it. Ping pong balls. <laughs> Might have edited that out. <laughs> anyway, it was a great conversation. And, and I think I, I met Grania when we were together in uh, Northern Ireland uh, at the Positive Birth Conference there. Uh, her talk was the highlight for me, to be honest. I really enjoyed it, made contact with her. And the whole area of pelvic floor health is uh, it's, it's kind of the area that as a midwife in the NHS, I nodded toward you know, and gave some sort of like uh, signposting and all the rest of it. Um, but the level at which uh, she is involved as a specialist, I thought was very interesting. Yeah, she um, has a real depth of knowledge and it was very interesting. She was also very engaging in the way she spoke about it. Very much so. 
here we go. So my name's Gronya Donnelly and I'm an advanced physiotherapist and team lead within the National Health Service in Northern Ireland um, and I also work in private practice. So my background of physiotherapy is an area that I think many people are not aware of, that it even exists. So I deal with all things to do with pelvic floor, pelvic floor function, or I suppose I deal with it when things aren't going as they should. So if people experience things like urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, even things like sexual dysfunction, which people often don't talk about. So that's where pelvic health physiotherapy comes in. Right. So, so you've, you've seen a lot of people with pelvic, um, dysfunction in some, some way or other. I have. So, and I'm guessing you, obviously men and women have pelvic floors. That's um, correct. Is there a sort of like a bias towards one sex? Do you see more women than men? Yes. So I would say that we predominantly see women and um, we do have a women's and men's health service. Um, however, women are definitely higher risk and more predisposed to pelvic floor dysfunction because of the things that we undergo in our lifetime, like childbirth, like menopause. All these things have um, consequences for our pelvic health and can predispose symptoms. Men commonly get issues, I suppose, around middle life um, in terms of prostate issues is the most common um, issues that people be aware of. But I want to highlight that one of the reasons that we're still seeing significantly more women is because men maybe aren't aware of our services either and on, are not coming forward to access them. So it's a big shout out to the men out there as well. We're a birth and early parenting show predominantly. Uh, but just a, a kind of a personal question that Karen can edit out if she wants. What should prompt a man to, to seek help from a physiotherapist with your speciality? Okay, so... Basically, if you're having any symptoms that might um, indicate pelvic floor dysfunction, so any sort of changes in bladder function, bowel function or sexual function, um, first and foremost, if you're finding that, say, you were leaking from the bladder or that you were having an increase in your frequency or urge to go to the toilet for bladder or bowel, you would go to your GP as your first point of contact to get screened for more serious, um, I suppose, causes of issues and get the prostate screened. But what I was going to say was that many men may just ha simply have weak pelvic floor muscles and need to address that. Or men who have had prostate surgeries or prostate treatments sometimes have a, a, a lack of support at their bladder neck as a result of those treatments. And therefore, they need to maximize their pelvic floor function. So by design, I would say men have a better pelvic floor support. They have the prostate, which sits nicely at the bladder neck and it supports it. Um, women do not have that, and that's why we're higher risk for issues. However, when men then have the prostate removed or treated, they sometimes lose that support, and pelvic floor physiotherapy can be very helpful for them. Right, brilliant. And so back to women, I, I'm guessing that you see quite a high number of women that have experienced you know, some, some level of physical trauma post-birth. Oh yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so what are the common what are the common issues that, that that come across your clinic? So, any women who even have a traumatic vaginal birth who experience a tear, whether that's a first degree, second degree, third degree tear, um, 
will end up with, I suppose, pelvic floor trauma. And as you can imagine, if, if any area of the body is affected with a tear or a cut, you can you can understand and appreciate that that could impact on the function of that area or the muscles in that area. Um, and a lot of times women actually experience hypersensitivity. So trauma, whether it's physical in its nature, it has wider considerations in that when we met at the Northern Ireland Birth Conference um, earlier this year, um, a lot of the focus was on the psychological trauma of childbirth. And I often think that the physical and psychological traumas are interlinked because if a woman has a particularly traumatic experience with delivery, ends up with an assisted delivery, feels that her, I suppose, delivery is quite out of control, it can have both very physical um, I suppose physical symptoms as a result of it, but it can be a very psychologically traumatic memory. And with that, the area can become completely sensitized. So even light touch, wiping after the toilet, things like that can become really painful. Intercourse almost becomes a no-go. And so it, it's this cycle that they can become stuck in. As, and we need to, I suppose, teach women how to break that. Yeah. So, I mean, the impact upon intimacy with partner... Mm-hmm. Um, the t- touching of the area ge- generating a triggered uh, memory uh, okay. as well as a heightened uh, sense of pain. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I-, I guess treatment uh, plans are obviously individual, but are there some general things that you, you do as a kind of a starting point? Well, yes. So you've hit the nail on the head, Mark, there. It is individualized. And that's why we really encourage that everyone accesses our services to get that individualized assessment and treatment. But to put people ease, pelvic floor physiotherapy, as I say, is something that many people are not aware that even exists. Um, but we're a really important step on the urogyny pathways. So before people can move on and consider, I suppose, um, more invasive uh, treatment techniques they need to exhaust pelvic floor physiotherapy and that's recommended in the NICE guidelines Um, but what we do is we take a thorough history um, from a woman or a man coming to us to find out what sort of symptoms they're experiencing and to find out how it's impacting upon their life and then what we tend to do is an examination so if we're experiencing dysfunction in any area of the body, you need to examine that area. And with pelvic floor dysfunction, it's the pelvic floor, which can often be off-putting to people. But usually after we've had a baby or we've um, been through the likes of that, we're usually not as um, put off by the idea of having someone, I suppose, assess the pelvic floor. It's not painful. It shouldn't be painful. And it's basically just to get an idea of what pelvic organ support is like in that area what their sensations like and what their muscle functions like now do can i just ask do you use things like transvaginal uh, scanning yes i use ultrasound scanning i don't use a transvaginal scanner i use transperineal so it's not internal um like occurs in the gynae clinic um it's a probe against the perineum and it gives a really good vis- visualization of the pelvic organs and the pelvic floor stroke stru- or function. It's a really good visual biofeedback for the patient themselves, but it also gives me a greater evaluation. And if someone didn't want a full internal examination, that's an option. So there is less invasive options for them. The importance of biofeedback sounds to me that's pretty important because, you know, if someone cannot have 
an experience of isolating the pelvic floor, they, they're probably just never aware of the pelvic floor and its action. Completely. Pelvic floor is an area of muscles that people hear about but don't often understand exactly what they are. They're an area of muscles that we don't see. So it's very hard for people who aren't in professions like yourself or my, myself to understand. Um, and what generally happens is people get a sheet of paper after having a baby that might have one pelvic floor muscle cue on it and that might not mean anything to that person so um I don't know if you remember at the conference I had a slide up um with several pelvic floor muscle cues on it or how I suppose yeah, seven sort of yeah because different um cues mean different things for different people and it's really important to find an instruction that gets that person's brain to tap into that area. Yeah, give us, give us a flavour of some of those cues because some of them were a bit risque. <laughs> so they get, I do work through a list and I work through some very family-friendly ones to begin with. And uh, if someone's not sort of responding to that in, and isolating their pelvic floor, they do get a little more PG as they go down. But to give a background for anyone listening, the pelvic floor are a group of muscles in the base of the pelvic area that both men and women have and they form either a hammock of support or a bowl of support. So you're thinking of a group of muscles that support the base of the pelvis. They play a role in bladder and bowel support or they, you know, they support the pelvic organs. They control our bowel and bladder and they also have a role in sexual function. So really important that we know how to activate them. They're the muscles that you can, I suppose, that stop and start the flow of urine if you're on the toilet. We don't teach them that way, but if anyone isn't aware, it's sometimes a good idea to see if you can stop the flow of urine mid-flow. Yeah, we don't, we don't teach them that, that way, I guess, because of the risk of ascending infection. Yes, and incomplete emptying. So they used to yeah. be taught like that. But sometimes if someone's not getting it, to try that as a one-off can be a good idea. Well, because it adds, it kind of adds in a way another aspect to the biofeedback, right? Completely, because it's an action and you can see the change. But what people should be able to do is tap into that area when they're not at the toilet. So we'll start off with, I get people to imagine they're trying to stop wind escaping from the back passage to close yeah, the ring I'm, of muscle. I'm doing, I'm doing it right now. Yes, and everybody has wind. That's a normal function. And we've all had that situation where we may be in a lift or we're in a public place and we do not want that to escape. So we can all kind of relate to that and think, right, what would you do? Unfortunately, when I'm assessing people, a lot of people clench their bum cheeks and just really squeeze tightly with that, which isn't your pelvic floor. You'll get really nice um, toned bum cheeks, but it's not your pelvic floor muscles. So if that doesn't work, I would then... Um, maybe get someone to visualize a zip from their back passage to their front passage and imagine that zip closing up or opening. So closing and opening the zip. Um, and I would also, a really nice visualization that works for some people is to imagine a jellyfish swimming. Yeah. Because when a jellyfish oh, yeah. swims, yeah. It kind of, I'm doing it with my hand now, which doesn't yeah. work on radio. Yeah, I'm doing yeah. it too, actually. That's yeah. So um, when a jellyfish swims, if everyone can imagine, as they move up, they actually close. And that's the same function, particularly in females. There's that action of moving up and closing over. To get a little bit more PG. Yeah, go on. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to shoot right in. Um, imagine squeezing your partner's penis, basically. So if people yeah. are having intercourse, if you were to tighten it against it, yeah. that's your I suppose in this case, size really does matter. 
Oh, absolutely. And you know what? This is a re- <laughs> but this is a really good one because it's, it's a really good form of biofeedback, but the men will love it. Do you know what I mean? So it's a win-win. Yeah. So do your pelvic floor exercise if you're in yeah. that situation because it's, it's great. And, and, and of course, and of course, on the risk a theme, you don't need a man to do that. No, you don't. You can no, use, you can uh, use a vibrator or. Totally. So it's that idea of tightening against something. And again, that's a form of biofeedback that women can use themselves because so if you're not sure if you're doing it right, you should be able to feel that you're tightening against something. So yeah. um, again, it's finding ways that work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, I had a very, I had a very, uh, no, I don't know, Karen led it, but uh, you know, ping pong balls coming to their own. Oh Yeah. Um, is it Thailand? Add, adding to biofeedback. <laughs> is it Thailand where the people um, shoot out ping pong balls? Yeah, you can, um, you can measure how good you are at the exercise by how much travel you get. I'm telling you, it's all pelvic floor function and uh, it's yeah. just finding different ways of working it. But yes, anything that you can do, it's, and it's that idea of isolating pelvic floor. So what I will yeah. highlight is that if you're doing pelvic floor exercises, you should be able to do them without anyone knowing you're doing them. So you shouldn't yeah. be moving up and down on a chair. Yeah. Or you shouldn't be moving your hips if you're standing. If you're doing them, no one should be able to know because they can't see the muscles. And the only reason that might be the giveaway is if you have to concentrate. So your face may give it away. So I'm sat here now doing isolating my pelvic floor. For that to be effective, how long should I be holding and how many repetitions and that kind of stuff? That's a really good question. So you have to do two different types of pelvic floor exercise to really maximize the function. We have both fast twitch and slow twitch fibers down below. And what that means is the fast twitch fibers, they're really important for activities that require a rapid response like coughing, sneezing, sudden laughing, or even stepping off a curb because those are the type of things that can compromise our... Ah, uh, um, these are the fibers that... Uh that are not working well when when someone voids running for the bus yes so if you have to do a sudden burst of the of quick kind of high pressure activity you might people might find the leak and that's your fast twitch fibers but the thing about them is that they are not very good for a task that requires longer control if you know what i mean so if your fast twitch fibers you strengthen them by tightening the ring muscle at the back passage letting go straight away tighten that goes straight away so you do 10 quick ones you're looking for 10 quick flicks the slow twitch fibers are your really important fibers for your general i suppose endurance and continence control throughout the day so if you are in the middle of a work shift and you get an urge to go to the toilet but you can't leave just then and there you need fibers that are able to control your bladder over a longer period of time and they're your slow twitch fibers. Right. So how you strengthen them is you draw in your pelvic floor with whichever cue works best for you. And you hold it in fully for 10 seconds, ideally. It's really important that you don't hold your breath. So it's really important to be able to draw in your pelvic floor. Hold oh, that's it not easy. That's it's not easy. It's not easy. It's like trying to um, tap your head and circle your belly. Why, 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 why is it important that you don't hold your breath? It's only 10 seconds, for God's sake. Because when we hold our breath, we increase our intra-abdominal pressure, which is uh, one of the risk factors for compromising pelvic floor function. God, that's good information to have. Go on, yeah, and it's a really common, um, I suppose, strategy that people employ because when people are looking, when our bodies are looking to get more effort or a stronger 
um, a stronger effort at something, generally we hold our breath by default, which is yeah, which is clever, but it's kind of counterproductive. So and, we and need it, to make it, sure it, it's counterintuitive to do the exercise that way. So that's really good information. Yes, so it's really important, and it, don't worry if you can't do it straight away. Just keep practicing on it. But if anyone out there is trying to do pelvic floor and they've tried some of the cues that we've mentioned today and they still are unsure about how to do pelvic floor exercises or they've been doing them and think they can feel them and they've got symptoms but the symptoms aren't getting any better even though they've been doing them for several weeks or several months don't just think that pelvic floor rehab doesn't work please access a professional because what's really important to highlight is that pelvic floor muscles aren't always weak it's not always a case that they need strengthened with women particularly those women we mentioned earlier that may have oversensitive uh, tissues down below and 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 um, traumatic birth experiences they can end up going into quite a guarding um posture and they can end up having really overactive pelvic floor muscles so the pelvic floor muscles are like contracted in all the time it's nearly a, a, a response if you imagine having a sore shoulder or anything like we usually kind of guard that area and when the muscles are tight like that they usually become quite painful and that may lead to symptoms like pain with intercourse um or it may mean that your pelvic floor muscles just don't do their job properly so you may find that you're leaking from the bladder or bowel um if you're finding that you've been trying to do um, advice that you've either read on the internet or that you've heard today and it's not working, please get your GP to refer you to your local pelvic health physiotherapist because your treatment needs to be individualized. All right. And, and I'm, I'm guessing um, my stepdaughter's a physiotherapist, funny enough. But oh, a, excellent. A, a general one. She did an MA okay. uh, in okay. two years, which is kind of mad. But anyway. Yes, that's tense. Very yeah, good. it's intense. It's intense. Uh, but I'm, I, our, our pelvic uh, health physiotherapists are widely available across the UK. So they are across the UK. There should be um, access to pelvic health physiotherapists in all, all trusts. What I would say is that for the amount of women who need access to our services, we need more pelvic health physiotherapists. So if your stepdaughter uh, decides that she ever wants to change a career, definitely um, encourage her to go into pelvic health physiotherapy. I imagine the numbers around uh, pelvic health uh, suffering uh, amongst uh, postpartum, you know, post-pregnancy women is rising, not going down because the levels of intervention seem to be rising or at least staying stable at high rates. Absolutely. And because of like the, all the risk factors that even contribute to maybe the likelihood of us developing more dysfunction, like the fact that we're older having babies, um, that may be an element infecting our, uh, our recovery. But if we know that one in three women will experience some form of pelvic floor dysfunction. What? Um, and if, yeah, one in three at least. And that's likely underreported because many women suffer in silence and don't. I, that's an interesting point you make because, you know, I've been a midwife for what, 26 years. And I've lived locally for that amount of time. So when I was actively practicing in the NHS, uh, not many weeks would go past uh, before I was stopped in Asda by by a, a client. You know, I never say hello mm -hmm. to them first. I wait for them to say hello to me. And, and I, I used to have women coming to me regularly who would say, you, you know, it's been eight months, a year. And uh, they would say, is it, is it right that I, it's still painful when we're having sex? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I go, what? It's been a year. I know. What, what is going on? So, so uh, how long do you think 
a client should be suffering, a woman should be suffering with some kind of symptomology linked to the pelvic floor before they go forward and speak to a health professional. I know women in England anyway get a six weeks check um, when I guess that's an opportunity to talk about pelvic floor issues. But how yes. long should a, should a woman leave it? Well, in the ideal world, they shouldn't leave it at all. So even within my health trust, we actually screen. And if anyone is reporting any symptoms, even while they're still in hospital after giving birth, like if they are experiencing any sort of urinary incontinence, um, they're automatically referred for pelvic health physiotherapy. And what we also do is we actually follow up all assisted deliveries by default. So even if they're not experiencing symptoms, really? we offer them. Yes, we're really lucky in our health trust that we do that because a lot of women don't realize that symptoms are not normal um, and they come in and they may, and it also is a case of because we know um, assisted deliveries are higher risk for developing symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, women may not have any symptoms yet, but they may be high risk for them because their pelvic floor function may not be optimal. So we're screening them teaching them how to do pelvic floor rehab properly at that stage, sending them back on so that they recover optimally. Now, that is not where we have a luxurious service, clearly, because that's not common practice in all areas. And what is not common is, or what is common but is not normal, is all the symptoms we're talking about. So if you have had a baby and certainly, yes, there's going to be some degree of um, a period of normal healing afterwards. So if at that six-week stage, you're getting your six-week check and you're still having any symptoms, whether that's leaking from the bladder, whether it's not leaking but you have a sudden urge and you have to go to the toilet quite a lot, um, whether it's pain down below, whether that's with intercourse, um, anything like that, get a referral into into the urogyny pathway. It should physiotherapy and even continence nurses should be the first um, stop on that pathway. So get referred in. And even if it's a case of you're not sure if you need help, if there's any doubt at all, Get get referred in because it it really. Imp- Sorry, I just want to clarify. So six weeks, that's long enough to know. Absolutely, you should not be experiencing leaking at that at that stage. Your muscles should be acting in and doing what they should do to control your bladder, your bowel, and you shouldn't be like. And what I want to highlight is the first time people have intercourse after having a baby can be quite nerve wracking. Um. I know I've I know what it's like because every time you have a baby, you just want to make sure everything's okay down below. Um, but it might be slightly uncomfortable because you're nervous the first time, but that shouldn't be the it shouldn't be ongoing. So there might there might be there might be some natural guarding. You're saying a little bit, yeah, and you might be a little bit uncomfortable because again, you're probably likely not getting that aroused if you're nervous. So that affects the comfort of having intercourse. And the other thing to highlight is that anyone who's breastfeeding is likely to have lower levels of estrogen still. So that can affect your vaginal lubrication, um, which can be another factor in having pain with intercourse. So if you're breastfeeding and you feel like you're not producing the same secretions as you normally would. AY jelly. Well, do you know what? I actually am a big fan of the natural products um, there's, and they're available on prescription oh. in the UK. There's, yes, vaginal moisturizers right. um, and... Um, there's another one that I that I can't think of, um, but yes, vaginal range is available on prescription, and it's completely right. organic. There's no chemicals in it, so I'm a big fan of not putting chemicals up the vagina if they're not needed. No lard, no, no, K, no. no KY jelly. No, I think that there's better <laughs> products. So please, please ask your GP for the natural um, organic ranges. 
it's just that reassurance um, and it is grading into it and it's doing it when you feel ready and feel comfortable. There's no right time to do it and, and you don't have to. I often get women into my clinic. So if we see they say the assisted deliveries and um, that we follow up and they maybe come in in around six weeks postnatal. Um, on our intake form, we go through all the questions for bladder function, bowel function and sexual function. So I do ask, have you attempted intercourse and how was that? Because some people have at that stage, but equally, a lot of people have not. And they sometimes look and they're like, should I have? And I'm like, no, it's totally up to you. It's just in case you have, I want to ask to see were there any symptoms with it. But it's really, really important that if people have returned to sexual function and it's not the same, either that they're not enjoying it, either that they have lack of sensation or that there's pain, get referred in and get help because that's not a symptom that's, that should be put down to, oh, well, I've had a baby, so that's just the way things are, which is commonly what happens. And, and you've had four? I've had four. And I've had four, and I have to say that... Um, I would say my last pregnancy was my most nerve-wracking pregnancy because being a pelvic health physiotherapist, I know that every vaginal delivery I have, my risk factors for any form of pelvic floor dysfunction go up. So I, I suppose, was in a situation where I felt I'd recovered well after all three, and I was like, this will be the one that will, <laughs> that will, that will tip me over the edge. But thankfully, with doing pelvic, I suppose, having, I suppose the knowledge I have has stood to me because I've been able to do my pelvic floor rehab, and I know how important it is. And... Can I put a, uh, a recommendation out to everyone who is out there and listening and has been fortunate enough to have deliveries and not maybe experience any issues to still do your pelvic floor exercises and pelvic floor rehab because later in life, as we start to enter that perimenopausal phase, which is now considered to be 35 years of age and onwards, when we start to enter that and get changes where our estrogen level changes, our tissues become thinner and drier, we can suddenly develop symptoms at that stage. Whereas if you keep your pelvic floor function optimized, you may lessen the risk for that. Yeah, we don't want we don't want adverts for sexy tenor pants no. to to shift the focus away from good pelvic health, do we? No, and the other thing is that we had talked briefly about this before, Mark, but the amount um, of money that's been spent on continence products. Now, continence products have a huge place. I, they're really good for people undergoing rehab to, to, you know what I mean, to lessen the impact of symptoms. But they're not the management of choice. They shouldn't be the long-term plan. And we know that in, I should have it here. Yes, it's estimated from that. Um, there was a recent publication in 2018 by NHS England on excellence in continence care. And it highlighted that the NHS spends around £80 million a year on continence products. That's massive. What, £80 million? £80 million. So if we have an NHS that is struggling, here's somewhere where we can start to address. <laughs> we need to... In- we need to get people content and get their awareness and education up so that they know that they need to be managing this so that we can lessen that. And that is also continence issues are the biggest indicator or the biggest risk factor for someone having to go into either supported living or nursing homes. So we're thinking down the line, like there's huge implications for our long term life. Would you point this in the direction where people can uh, see some of the work that you do, um, you know, get, get in contact? with you yes certainly so um on social media platforms um i go under absolute.physio so on instagram and facebook absolute.physio is my business page and we i put up a lot of information 
on these sort of topics um, for people to access. I've also got a website at www.absolute.physio. That's it. Um, and there's information there as well. And on Twitter, I'm under at absphysio, A-B-S-P-H-Y-S-I-O. Um, what I wanted to also highlight is we, I was a co-author alongside two English physiotherapists, um, Tom Goom, who's a musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapist, and Emma Brockwell, who's another um, pelvic health physiotherapist like myself. We actually co-authored Returning to Running Postnatal Guidelines, um, which are totally applicable for everyone for just generally returning to exercise, um, but we focus with the research and return to running. Um, they're free to download. So um, I share them on my social media platforms um, again, but basically if you search for Return to Running Postnatal and even search my name, they should come up on Google and they're free to download. Lots of information for all healthcare professionals as well as the general public. Brilliant. Thank you very, very, very much. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So that was Grania Donnelly, and um, we've got lots of information from her included in the show notes. So you can follow up, get more information and so on. Um, This is something that's a a problem for a surprisingly high percentage of women, as you heard in the interview, and um, quite difficult really to follow through with a GP because it's for one thing really hard to get GP appointments these days and not really their kind of specialist area naturally. Yeah I mean I, I, I remember when I was way back um, within uh, the NHS uh, walking around ASDA and having women uh, come up to me and say hello and all the rest of it and, and sometimes eight months to a year on they would still be experiencing pain you know, when they were intimate with their partner. And uh, they say to me, is this normal? And I'd say, no! <laughs> no, it's also, not. Also, not normal to have a conversation with a bloke about that in Asda. Oh, uh, I find, first of all, if people don't know me and find out I'm a midwife, I hear a birth story. Well, yeah. Uh, and if they do know me and I'm in Asda, I, I get all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Over yeah. the... Uh, over the frozen fish fingers, talking about perineums. Mm, there's a joke in that, isn't there? There is. Don't want to know what it is, though. Uh, n- no, <laughs> there, there, I, would, I can think of one now. But anyway. You keep it to yourself. Yeah, I, the other thing about the interview I found interesting was the distinction between long fibres and twitch fibres and that we, we need to exercise them in different ways. I think I knew that, but to be reminded of it in that way uh, was pretty cool. Yeah, isn't that something, I mean, all, all muscles have different fibres and there are people have um, greater efficiencies in some than others, which is why you get sprinters and marathon runners. I'm getting a bit out of my depth here. <laughs> That's all right. We've covered nutrition and health. No, we, you know, why not? Um, uh, something else. <laughs> so moving along. Go on. Thank you, Grania, for that interview um what we are going to talk about now is um, we asked on facebook if people had oh, some yeah. ideas and things they'd like to give us as feedback on the show um, and we did get um quite a few comments in response which was lovely we're always grateful for people getting involved um but everybody just said oh i really like what we do um so, yeah i know keep it the same yeah um apart from 
um, the suggestion from Joe Duggars done if you could take the 9am slot on BBC Radio 4 that would suit her um, yeah me too I think you have to get up quite early for that Joe and I'm not really into that yeah I won't be doing that also Radio 4 have never called us and asked us to do it oh, no they haven't although I was invited to be on the telly last week Wait, what were you going to be on Jeremy Vine show why did you not well it was today for a start well, that's okay. I would have let you have a day off. I know you would have done. And it was a very short um, piece. So, I mean, if I was interested in going on the show just for the experience, I would have done it. But taking a whole day out of my work to spend two minutes talking about precipitate birth, yeah. I, I, I just... And also, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of 144 men who are midwives, mm-hmm. and there are 48,000 female midwives who are more representative of my profession uh, so i pointed them in the direction of someone else and that mark is the right answer that's what it's the answer is it yeah <laughs> stop talking to men about women's experience is the right answer well exactly and so intuitively uh, i i thought no i won't do this we have talked about some things that we wanted to do, like um, getting different um, interview styles and things like that. Um, we are doing more interviews on Patreon these days. So yeah. we have been asking people to t- tell their stories. And sometimes we just find we've, we're so backed up with interviews, we can't use them all on the show. So we put them on Patreon. We've started a heritage uh, type interview where we talk to people about their professional lives. Coming up next month, we've got our first proper one of those with Michelle O'Don, which we're really excited about. Yeah, and that's going to be on the main show as opposed to being on Patreon, isn't it? Yes, it is. Whereas some of those uh, longer form interviews will f- find a natural home on Patreon. Okay, so that's our next question for the audience, and we'll put this on Facebook. Um, let us know who you'd like us to interview for a heritage interview, and maybe that's what we'll explore for now. We won't make any big changes. Yeah, no, I think that's good. Okay, let's have a look at the news. Yes, yeah, so the piece a piece that I posted, How Men's Bodies Change When They Become Fathers. So who's it published by? This is in the Telegraph in their parenting and, well, actually the health and wellness section, I think. It's called How Men's Bodies Change When They Become Fathers by Anna Machin. And it was it's from June the 13th last year. Yeah, and I, I love the picture. Yeah, it's a really lovely picture. So an anthropologist who studies human fatherhood at the University of Oxford says, I, uh, I've run up against a widespread and deeply ingrained belief amongst fathers that, that, that because their bodies haven't undergone the myriad biological changes associated with pregnancy, birth and breastfeeding, they're not, they are not as biologically and physiologically primed for caring as women are. So I think she's arguing that men do undergo biological changes. Um, yeah. She says it's, it's as, as biological a phenomenon as being a mum. Yeah. And she talks about testosterone dipping. Testosterone seems to dip after the birth. Yeah, which, which makes sense. You know, because uh, testosterone inhibits uh, estrogen, and ox- and, um, estrogen and oxytocin. So the idea that testosterone dips in order for those other hormones of connection, bonding, love, whatever you want to call it, that makes total sense from an evolutionary point of view. 
Some studies have suggested that the lower a man's testosterone, the more likely he is to release key reward and bonding hormones, namely oxytocin and dopamine, when interacting with his child. I'm quoting from the the passage, but she's effectively saying the same thing as me. Testosterone seems to inhibit uh, oxytocin and estrogen, definitely, uh, in my reading. So it would allow for the expansion of those feelings of uh, bonding and connection. So very cool, I'd say. Yeah, she also talks about neurological changes. Yeah. Um, to um, that, that she says help fathers to um, start to use the the skills of parenting. Yeah. Um and that the changes that you see in male brains mirror those seen in female brains around this sort of time. Um so that the areas of the brain linked to attachment and nurturing behaviors seem to well she she says react. Yeah. Well and and you know we've spoken about mirror neurons before and particularly in young children you know bearing in mind we're a herd animal so uh, because young children's brains seem to mimic the same oxytocin levels as their parents um the idea of being around your children interacting with your children his levels of oxytocin being enabled to rise more you know make it more likely that the child experiences those same physiological changes in their body so it's, it's powerful stuff i think in the context of parenting it is, and it changes the context a little bit because if we're talking about um, men not feeling prepared and they're not part of the, the nine months of pregnancy and they're not actually doing the birth and they feel sometimes a bit like a spare part, especially if they're not um, involved in feeding and they, they feel a lot of pressure to, to do something, yes. this actually is saying, look, you are doing something and as you interact with your baby, then um, there are physiological changes happening that help you to be this nurturing parent that you yeah. feel you ought to be, but you you feel like you haven't kind of learned how to be. And actually, to some extent, the new mother's learning how to be and um, developing along with her own brain and body at the same time. Yeah, true. And, and of course, um, a man going through the birth experience with his partner, you know, when she's in the room responding to these ancient evolutionary hormonal shifts and surges, um, he is too. But the context in which he finds himself doesn't allow the expression of those uh, shifts and changes in his body. You know, historically, he would have been primed to fight, flight or freeze in that context. Um, I was going to say designed, but certainly evolved in order to keep progeny alive, you know, to protect. And now he finds himself squeezed into a situation where those hormones are still rampant, but the outlets that he would have had aren't open to him. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is g- good stuff, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the major tendency I find amongst men is it's not that they don't want to prepare for the pregnancy, but they have a tendency of putting it in the back of their mind. And, and that relates to, to fear, in my opinion. You know, you know, the, the male neurophysiology seems to withdraw from a problem until they feel able to engage with the problem. And, and if 
the the issue or the problem that they perceive in front of them is outside of their ability to cope with, well, then they withdraw and try and forget about it. And I see that a lot in men. You know, they're going to prepare for the birth, but not until she's in the birthing process itself mm. uh, do do they uh, feel that urge to to get ready and by then it's probably too late yeah indeed so interesting stuff for anyone working with um, parents generally and fathers in particular yeah very nice anything else in that news section you want to talk about um, you also shared a link about a drug for um, that is designed to treat diabetes, which might prevent recurrent miscarriage. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. I, and I'm looking at it now. It's, it's a very small trial. Right. A, tr- a trial in 38 volunteers suggests it suggests that this drug in question helps better prepare the womb lining for pregnancy by boosting certain beneficial cells. Um, the size of the study uh, means that we have to treat it uh, with caution. Um, but I posted it because I, I, I felt the numbers of women experiencing uh, miscarriage in the UK are high. I haven't got the exact figures um, to hand. Uh, but anything that is offering some uh, comfort or hope or support um, is worth investigating. Um, the article we've posted is from the BBC News. It's called Diabetes Drug May Help Prevent a Miscarriage by their health editor, Michelle Roberts. And that they posted on the 9th of January 2020. Um, and the study um, was funded by the charity Tommies. And it's been published in The Lancet. And they are calling for larger studies, which makes sense. It does. It, it, apparently, the treatment appears to boost stem cell numbers in the womb lining. Uh, the fact that it's initially published in The Lancet is is reassuring to some extent because the peer review process, although uh, influenced by the politics of academia, uh, is rigorous, right? Yeah, it's a reputable source. Yeah. One thing I did take issue with in the article was their use of language. So they say experts believe some women who miscarry do not have enough of these stem cells. Well, if what they're reporting on is is um, information discovered through um, scientific study, and I'm not sure believe is quite the well, right word. And it feels a bit undermining to people doing science to equate it with, with a belief. Well, they're yeah. not saying, I know what you're going to say, and they're not saying yeah. this is the truth, but they are no. saying this is what we have found. And I, I th- that's the basis of empiricism, isn't it? You, you know, you have to be able to to reproduce your experiment. Which is what they're calling to do. Yeah, with similar results. And and until you've done that, I think maybe belief or another word would be hypothesis, I guess. Well, it, it, it would, but they could just describe and say this is what has been found. Yeah. Using language like believe is symptomatic of big media undermining yeah. experts. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think? That, do you think that was consciously done, or do you think it's just? Uh, no, I think that's their culture. Yeah, habituation of what's what's gone before. Cool. And I linked one from the Guardian, which um, came out on the tenth of January, and this is Gemma Carey writing about um, she had, she had a miscarriage, and she had previously written about being pregnant during the the Australian bushfires. And 
having then miscarried after going through a thought process of what on earth am I doing bringing a child into this world, she writes that she she might decide not to get pregnant again. Right. And I thought this was quite profound and moving. And linked to um, the state of the world in terms of ecology, I'm guessing. Yeah, which is something we need to be aware of when we are broadcasting. You know, we're speaking, we have a platform and climate change is really important. I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. And it's 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 kind of it's kind of maybe the issue that you you can't just put off dealing with. Uh, well, apparently you can because we we do, don't we? <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, I, I, we have a commitment in our house to recycling. Uh, but beyond that, I, I'm not doing anything else. You? Yeah, but th- things need to be done at a policy level. It's it's not about individuals not using straws. It's about what governments do and where money is is put and what lobbyists get the most power and the most say. Yeah, I mean, I ironic. It's not ironic. I was going to say, from the point of view of evolutionary history, uh, extinction events are common. Over yeah. time, and, and you so, can look at it in that perspective and say, "Well, fine, we, we we've broken the planet; we're all going to die out. This is a natural occurrence." But it would be nice if we didn't break the planet. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. So, future interviews related to climate change. I, yeah, I'd like that. Disasters suggestions, please, people or volunteers. If this is your expert area, we want to hear from you. And we did actually, didn't we? Right back at the start, we had one about air pollution. We did. From the clean air people. Yeah, it was good. We covered vaping on that one as well. Did we? Yeah, I think we might have. It's a very long time in the past. A long time. We can revisit some of those subjects, I think, now. Yeah. Cool. Right, shall we wrap up? Go on. Okay, so um, lots to listen to today. Hope you've enjoyed that. If you have any suggestions, we really would love to be taking on um, your feedback and if you can think of somebody you think would be good we do listen we don't manage to do everything that everyone suggests but we definitely take those on board and try to get to them when we can so yeah. you know how to find us we're on facebook.com slash spodcast we're on twitter as at spodcast um, and hopefully you'll catch up with the next episode and listen to Mark's amazing interview with Michelle O'Dont yeah do that and um, remember we're on Patreon so you can support us there financially. Uh, the other thing that just occurs to me, Karen, it'd be nice if people were at uh, various study days and conferences and they wanted to send us an audio clip of their reflections on the conference. Um, we would certainly listen to those and publish some of them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's have a, a year of um, conference feedback and reports. We'd love that. We, you all can be our roving reporters. Definitely, and we would include audio clips, easy to send via WeTransfer um, or WhatsApp. So get on it. And, of course, if you like the show, a five- or four-star review on iTunes would be great, wouldn't it? Yes, it would definitely be much nicer than a three-star one. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Yes, bye. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code Sprogcast at the checkout.